Today, we are concluding our series through the book called Core 52, which we have been going through since January, going through some of the most important stories and topics in all of the Bible. And so we hope that uh, at the end of this year, you feel more confident in your Bible IQ. You know more of the stories of the Bible. And more importantly, we hope and pray that you have grown in your love for Jesus. And so we're grateful that you have traveled on this journey with us up to this point. And if you weren't able to travel with us through Core 52, we're excited because next week, I cannot believe that we are already going to be in 2022. And so next week, we are starting uh, a new series throughout the whole year. We're talking about journeying with Jesus. And so we want to invite you back next week as we start that in 2022. Still crazy for me to actually say that. But since we are finishing up our series through Core 52, it's gotten me thinking about some of the endings of some of my favorite stories. Now, I want you to think about your favorite stories. These are my favorite stories, so you don't have to hate on me for some of the stories that I like. But some of the favorite stories that come to my mind are stories like Harry Potter, stories like the Chronicles of Narnia, stories like Of Mice and Men. Yes, I actually liked reading that in English class in high school. And stories like The Hunger Games, And so I don't know what your stories are. Those are my stories. I want you to think of your favorite stories, and I want you to think specifically about the end of those stories, what happens at the end of your stories. Because what we find out in pretty much every single story is that the end of the story is really just a new beginning. The end of the story is really just a new beginning to another story. I mean, maybe you don't know the story of Harry Potter, but Harry and Ginny, they get married. Spoiler alert, sorry about that. Harry and Ginny, they get married, and then we hear that they have some kids, and then what happens to those kids? Well, we don't, I mean, they go to Hogwarts, thank you, Peyton, but we don't really know what happens to them after that. Or the Hunger Games, Janelle and I, we just finished listening to all three of the Hunger Games, so good, and we hear about, spoiler alert, we hear about PETA and Katniss, and they get married, and they have kids, and then... What happens to Pan Am? Does it survive? Does it thrive? Or do they end up falling back into violence? We don't really know because the end of the story is really just the beginning of a new one. And the same is true with our lives. Every single one of us, we will have an end to our story. But really the end is just the beginning of something new. And for us as Christians, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, the end of our story, death, really isn't the end. Because of the resurrection of Jesus and what he has accomplished on our behalf, we get to spend eternity with him. We have what some people call the hope of heaven because of Jesus. And so today what we're going to focus our attention on is we are going to talk about the hope of heaven from the passage in Revelation, Revelation 21. We could go to a lot of different passages, but we're going to focus on this passage, Revelation chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. But before we talk about heaven, I need to clarify two things, because there are two misunderstandings that we need to think about as we think about heaven and Revelation chapter 21. The first misunderstanding when it comes to heaven is that we understand the term heaven imprecisely. Now this might rub some of you the wrong way, but When we die, we don't automatically go to heaven. That's what we normally think about. When we die is when we go to heaven. But actually, when we die, we're not really told much about the place that we will go, other than in Philippians chapter 1, 23, it tells us that we will be in the presence of Jesus. 
But when we visualize heaven, what we typically are talking about is the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes back and judges the entire world and we will be with Him forever, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And so when we think of heaven, and when I say heaven right now, we do have to understand that we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, not just heaven. So that's misunderstanding number one. We talk imprecisely about heaven. But misunderstanding number two comes when we think about the book of Revelation. Oftentimes when we think about the book of Revelation, we think that it's like this some code about the end times and we have to figure out all of these codes. And, and really, what we have to understand about the book of Revelation is that this was written to seven churches in Asia in the first century. Here's a picture of all of the seven different churches. So what you have to understand is that these Christians in the first century, they were suffering for their faith in Jesus. They were suffering. Some of them were suffering a physical persecution. Some of them were being beaten and killed for their faith in Jesus. But more often, Christians were facing economic and social pressure to give up on Jesus. I mean, I want you to imagine putting yourself in the first century uh, in Rome as a Christian. You've just begun to follow Jesus. You've just claimed your allegiance to Jesus as your king. And when that happened, no longer would you get invites to go to the Colosseum. No longer would you get invites to go to the theaters. All of your friends pretty much abandon you because you are an atheist now. You don't believe in all of their different gods. And so socially you are struggling. And then on top of that, if you had a job selling things, which was often what you had to do to make a living back then, Nobody would want to buy from you anymore. And so socially, you were hurting because all your friends had abandoned you. Economically, you were hurting because you had no way to support your family. You had no money. And psychologically, you were hurting because all of these things were swirling around because of your new professed faith in Jesus. And so you began to wonder, is it even worth following Jesus? Is it worth all the pain to follow Jesus? Is it worth feeling like an outsider to follow Jesus? And so the book of Revelation was written to these Christians amidst, amidst all these struggles to remind them that yes, Jesus is worth it, and yes, Jesus has conquered, and yes, because we have Jesus, we have the hope of heaven. And if first century Christians clung on to that hope, the hope of heaven, we should cling on to the hope of heaven too. And so today we're going to talk about just three different pictures of what heaven will be like and then also what will not be there. So we'll have what it will be like and what it will not have there. And the first picture that I want us to think about is that heaven will be a perfect physical place. I have to be honest with you, I really struggled with how exactly I wanted to articulate this. But heaven will be a perfect physical place. Look at Revelation 21 verse 1 with me. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I'd love for you to circle that. A new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. What might surprise you there is that there is a presence of a new earth. Because sometimes when we think about heaven, we just think about how we will be floating up in the clouds up there somewhere. But that's not the picture of heaven that we are given here. Instead, we are given a picture of heaven and earth coming together. There's a, earth is a physical 
reality, a physical transformed material reality, whatever that means. But it will be a perfect physical earth. God's story has always been a collision of heaven and earth coming together. Just think about Christmas. Christmas is the story of God coming to earth. God bringing heaven down to earth. God has always been in the business of bringing heaven down to earth. And Jesus, one of his most famous prayers and the prayer that he loved to pray the most, the Our Father prayer. Many of you know it. Our Father, dot, 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 dot. And Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is in the business of bringing heaven and earth together. And at the end of our story, it will be a perfect earth and a perfect heaven together. And now thinking about the earthiness of heaven actually gets me excited because there are a lot of good things about our earth. I mean, there are a lot of things in this world that I love. Like, I love in the mornings waking up and smelling coffee. Or I love smelling Janelle's chocolate chip cookies in the oven. I love seeing a beautiful sunset or a sunrise or, or seeing the Rocky Mountains in all of their majesty. I love feeling a cool breeze on my face and a hug from someone I love. I love hearing the birds chirping in the morning and someone who's got a beautiful voice singing. The earthiness of heaven gets me excited because I truly believe that in the new heavens and in the new earth, the earthiness of heaven will be even greater than what we have here. It will be an extension of the good things that we have and they will be even greater. And what's so fascinating about the Bible is that it really doesn't give us a lot to work with when thinking about the earthiness of heaven. Uh, what we really have to work with is the resurrected body of Jesus. So after Jesus, he died on the cross for us. He resurrected after three days. And Jesus, he had a physical body. And in fact, he was able to eat fish and he still had scars on his hands and in his side. He could be touched. But at the same time, his glorified, transformed, resurrected body could also walk through walls. And Jesus actually says that he is going to do the same thing to us. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, it tells us that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they can be like his glorious body. And so there's no doubt that there's this heavenly, transformed, glorified part of heaven, but also with this earthiness of heaven that I think sometimes we forget to focus on and think about. Heaven will be a perfect physical place, whatever that means. And I want you to notice what will not be there. The very end of verse 1, it tells us that there will no longer be any seas. The heaven will be a perfect physical place and it will not have any seas there. And I know some of you out there, you're beach bodies, and so you're thinking to yourself, well, if there's no beach in heaven, then I don't want to be there. Well, what you have to understand is that in the first century, when they viewed the seas, what they saw was evil and chaos. I mean, I didn't know if this, but back in, uh, well, I did know this part. Back in the first century, they didn't have any submarines. I knew that part. But I didn't know that even today, we have only explored 5% of the Earth's oceans. And in a world that has 71% water, that means that there's a lot of things that are undiscovered. There's a lot underneath the water. And so it makes sense from a first century Jewish perspective to see the seas and see chaos and see evil. Because we don't really know what's going on underneath there. 
And so John, from this first century Jewish perspective, he tells us that in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be no seas. There will be no evil. Can you imagine a world without evil? Can you imagine a world without addictions and abuse, a world without sexual trafficking and rape, a world without gossip and hate and murder? John tells us that all of these and all other evils will cease to exist, and in their place will be experiences that are even greater than the greatest experiences that we have right here and right now. Heaven will be a perfect physical place, and it will not have any seas. It will not have any evil. The second picture I want us to see is that heaven will be full of God's people. Heaven will be full of God's people. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So here we're actually given two metaphors of what heaven will be like. First, he says it's like a city coming down that is like a bride coming down. And what I, if you want to read more about what the city will be like, read Revelation chapter 22. We don't have enough time uh, to go there today. I'm already going to uh, be here for another 50 minutes. Just kidding, it won't be that long. But, so if you want to read about the city, Revelation 22. But if you, what I want to focus on is the bride of Christ coming down. Because throughout the New Testament, when we read about the bride of Christ, we're talking about the church. We are talking about God's holy people. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, this becomes clear to us in verses 7 and 9. This is at the wedding supper of the Lamb is what it's called. And it says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So who is this bride? It says, Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to her to wear. She had a beautiful white dress on. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of who? Of God's holy people. The bride here is the church. The bride is God's people. And that means that heaven will be full of all kinds of different people. People from all different backgrounds and different time periods and different places and different skin colors. All of these different people will be in heaven with us. And so it gets me pretty excited to think about some of the people that I will get to see in heaven. People like some of the saints of old, like Peter and Paul and John. People like Moses and Abraham, Joshua and Daniel, those people, it's going to be so exciting to just go talk to them about their experience of God. And then I'm also pretty excited to see people like my grandma, my grandma Anita, who I never saw because she passed away when my dad was only 12. And I know she was a follower of Jesus, and so I'm pretty confident I will see her there. Maybe for you, it's a loved one like that that you're excited to see, or maybe for you it was a a grandparent or or a parent, a mom or a dad, maybe it was an old Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor, maybe it was a friend of yours who helped you on this journey with Jesus, but you didn't get to spend a lot of time with them. In the new heavens and new earth, we will be able to be there with them because the bride of Christ is the church. The bride of Christ is God's people from all times, and all backgrounds. I love this image that we're given here of the bride of Christ, because if I'm honest with you, I'm kind of a sap 
Yeah, I, I like romantic movies, and I like performing, officiating weddings. So uh, I'm 26 now, and what that means is that pretty much all my friends around my age and the people in my family around my age, they're all getting married around this time. And so since I'm pretty much the only pastor that they know, I normally get asked to officiate the wedding. And so I, I typically say yes. Uh, and so um, I love officiating weddings. Some preachers will tell you they do not like doing that. Uh, I actually do enjoy it. There's a lot of moments in the wedding that I enjoy. I love the, the moments where they get, a, they get the first kiss. That's always a beautiful moment. Um, I love when they, when they say their vows to one another, that they're going to be by each other's side forever. That's always a cool moment. I love when they cut the cake because, if I'm honest with you, I love wedding cake. I think it's the best cake out there. Can I get an amen? And so that's one of my favorite moments too. But my favorite moment in a wedding is the moment when the, when the bride begins to walk down the aisle. Because at that moment, I always look at the groom. And almost every single time, the groom has a tear streaming down his face. Because he is full of love and joy for his bride who is coming down the aisle. Church, I want you to envision Jesus as the groom. Welcoming you and me and the church home full of love and full of joy. And men who have stood there and been married before, I want you to think about that feeling of love that you had towards your wife and then multiply that times a million. Because that's how Jesus feels towards you and me. And that's why he brings us to heaven with him. It's a beautiful, astounding picture, but it really should surprise us. Because in the Bible, what we find out is that God's people are constantly turning their back on him. They are constantly rebelling against him. In fact, it tells us many times that God's people are called prostitutes and a word that rhymes with pores. I'll let you fill it in. We are called that because we are constantly prostituting, turning to other gods, so much so that there's a book in the Bible called Hosea that focuses on this. Hosea was a prophet of God, and God tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so Hosea obeys him, finds this woman named Gomer, this prostitute, buys her out of prostitution, marries her, starts a family with her, and everything seems to be going okay until she goes back into the life that she had before. And then God says to Hosea one more time, go again. Go find your wife, buy her back, and love her. Why would God call Hosea to do something like this? Well, we find out about it in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Hosea's love for Gomer is an example of God's love for the church of God's love for you and me. Because whether or not we like to acknowledge it, we are like Gomer, who stray away from Jesus. We are like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, who has squandered all the good gifts that God has given us, and yet God loves us enough to welcome us home with his embrace of love and grace 
and forgiveness. And He allows us to spend eternity with Him. And He makes us new. That's one of the beautiful things about what Jesus does in our life. He doesn't just keep us the same. He transforms us. Look at verse 5 with me in Revelation 21 and following. It says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious will inherit this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Heaven is full of God's people, and we will drink from the water of life. We will drink from Jesus forever. And so we can rejoice as followers of Jesus that we will be with other believers forever. Heaven is full of God's people. But what I want you to notice is what will not be there. Verse 8 tells us that unbelievers will not be there. Here's what verse, seven, verse 8 says. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consi- consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I want to call the elephant out of the room because if we believe these words are trustworthy and true, which we do as Christians, then that probably means there will be people in heaven, there won't be people in heaven that we love and know. There will be people missing there. So I want us to think for a moment, what is the difference between those who are victorious in verse 7 and those who are unbelieving in verse 8. Because the truth is, if we read verse 8 slowly and honestly and self-reflectively, we would see ourselves in that list. Look back at verse 8 with me. The cowardly, been a coward before. The unbelieving, I've had moments of faithlessness before the vile, I've said things that I wish I never said. The murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters. I've turned to other gods like success. Liars, they will all be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. If we're honest, this list disqualifies every single one of us. So what do we do? Well, thankfully for us, it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done for us. He came to earth and lived a perfect life and died our death for us and then resurrected from the grave, proving that he truly is king so that when we trust in him, we can have eternal life. And Jesus, he invites every single one of us to himself. He doesn't exclude anybody. He invites everyone. Listen to what he says in John chapter 7, verse 37. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Jesus is the only thing that separates those in verse 7 from those in verse 8. 
Trusting in Jesus is the one necessary action for heaven, and it separates those who are victorious in verse 7 from those who are unbelieving in verse 8. What I want you to know is that God is a perfect gentleman, and He's not going to force Himself upon you. Instead, He is going to honor our choices on whether or not we want to be with Him for eternity. And so the question that you and I, we have to ask ourselves is will I choose a life with Jesus or will I choose a life without Jesus? The victorious ones in verse 7 are those who have chosen a life with Jesus. And so heaven, heaven will be a perfect physical place. Heaven will be full of God's people. And lastly, and I think most importantly, is that heaven will be full of God himself. Heaven will be full of God himself. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The greatest experience of heaven will be experiencing God himself. The greatest experience of heaven will be experiencing God in all of his fullness. We will finally have a full intimacy with God that has been broken because of our sins. Why? Well, because God has made his dwelling among his people. And this has actually always been God's goal. God has always wanted to dwell fully, intimately with his people. We see it all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And if you trace through the Bible, you see this throughout a whole bunch of different passages. The book of Leviticus chapter 26, when you think about Leviticus, you probably think about blood and the sacrificial system and the Old Testament and the law. But even there in Leviticus chapter 26 verse 11 and 12, God says to his people, I will put my dwelling place among you. And I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Hundreds of years later, there was another prophet. His name was Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Hundreds of years later, there was another prophet. His name was Zechariah. Zechariah 8.8. This is God again. He says, I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. God has always wanted to dwell with his people in a perfect relationship. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus took heaven and brought it to earth to dwell among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. If you were here for Christmas Eve, this verse will sound familiar. The Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has always wanted to dwell with His people in a perfect relationship, but we continue to screw it all up. And that's why He sent Jesus to save us and to redeem all of the brokenness in our world, especially our relationship with Him. And so that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. When He returns, He will restore all brokenness, including our relationship 
with him. Many of you know that eternal life starts now. You have a relationship with Jesus now, but there are some obstacles in the way to where we only know God in part. 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that. He says there is coming a day where we will no longer see God in part, but we will see Him fully. Our sin, our flesh, and the devil, they try and take us away from God and knowing Him fully. But what's so beautiful about heaven is that all that separates us from God and knowing Him fully will be separated, will be gone. It will cease. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I made a list this week of the things that will no longer be in heaven. Things like aches and pains, hips replacements and broken bones, bullies and gossip, Cancer and COVID-19, dialysis and other diseases, fears and failures, broken dreams and nightmares, unemployment and poverty, racism and riots and rape, stress and worry, sexual trafficking and pornography, funerals, hospitals and goodbyes, sin, death and the devil, every single one of them will cease to exist in the new heavens and the new earth because we will be with God forever. And the greatest gift that we will get to experience is being with God Himself. Here's what I want you to remember this morning, is that Jesus came to earth to be with us so that we could be with Him forever. Jesus came to earth to be with us so that we could be with Him forever, and that is the greatest gift that we could ever be given. Today, we've talked a lot about some of the joys of heaven. We've talked about how it's going to be a perfect physical place and some of the things, some of the experiences that we might have multiplied times infinity. We've talked about some of the people that we might be able to see there. But I was reminded of a quote this week of another preacher friend of mine. He sent this to me. It's a quote from John Pastor, a minister up in Minnesota. And listen to these words. John Piper says this, he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasked and no human conflict or any natural disasters, pretty cool place. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Every single one of us needs to ask that question. Because more than anything else, the greatest gift that we will have in heaven is God himself. Jesus came to earth to be with us so that we could be with him forever. Are you excited about spending eternity with Christ? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and what a joy and blessing to talk about the hope of heaven and all of the good gifts that you have given us here that will be even greater in the new heavens and new earth. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be working in our heart 
in the moments when we feel like giving up on you, Jesus. Remind us that you've conquered the grave and that we have the hope of heaven. Help us to cling on to you, Jesus. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.